According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 3. We're coming down to, uh, well, we're approaching the uh, final paragraph of this chapter, but we're still uh, dealing with uh, verses 7 through 16 and pressing on or 12 through 16, pressing on the upward way. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And tonight we're going to break down the terms from that verse and uh, surprise ourselves with the, the wealth of material that's there. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and calling upon our Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight and the blessing we have to assemble together, to study, to show ourselves approved. We thank you for your grace and your faithfulness. We thank you for the blessings that you supply to us. And we call upon your faithfulness this evening to set aside distractions, to put a hedge of protection around us and hinder any troublemakers that want to come in here and fix all our bad doctrine. (laughs) So, Father, uh, you know uh, who we had this morning and what's going on there and where he needs to be. But in any event, pray for him too while we're at it, Father. Uh, Bless him and bless us. And just thank you for being faithful. I give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, yeah, if you missed this morning, then you missed the the excitement on that. But we'll uh, we'll let that go. Yeah. Uh, We can take some questions. And uh, we have a microphone ready to go. The microphone will not be recorded, though, so uh, after you speak, for the benefit of people in the room listening, I'll try to repeat it to make sure it gets on the recording as well. Lewis. Yeah, this morning you read about apples of gold, and I assume you weren't talking about gold delicious apples, so what, what was that about apples of gold? Do you remember the passage in uh, Proverbs? Uh, not anymore. No, me either. I have no idea. Apples of gold and settings of silver. It sounds cool though, doesn't it? Like ap- apples of gold in settings of silver. Well, that sounds pretty exciting. I want one of those. Is a word spoken in right circumstances. So that's Proverbs 25.11. And we were talking about an apt word, and so a word spoken in right circumstances is desirable. It's positive. It's something that blesses any believer when they hear uh, an apt word that's spoken in uh, in right circumstances. All right. Now, as far as the other details go, I've not studied that, and I don't know how to answer that tonight. Well, uh, when we get to chapter 25, I hope to understand what golden apples in silver settings might uh, might relate to. All right, behind you there, Bill's got a question. Ephesians 6.18. Okay. Uh, more specifically, just the, kind of like the first half of it, so 18a. It says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And, because we, I know we were talking about prayer yesterday. Mm-hmm. And, so I, I went back and was going through um, the Colonel Colonel Thien's book on prayer. Right. He was speaking about that we should be that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order for 
prayers to be heard or, or, or whatever the case may be. Right. If you're out of fellowship, God says He will not listen. Not that He cannot listen, but He will not listen. He said, your iniquities have created a barrier between you and God. Do we have a verse for that? That's what I was kind of... It's the verse that says, your iniquities have created a barrier between you and God. <laughs> and uh, I can find it. Um, I, I want to say it's Isaiah. Isaiah 59 and verse 2. Yeah, it's Isaiah 59 and verse 2. And it's not that he's hard of hearing. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. So it's not an issue of his impotence or his inability, his lack of strength to get it done. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. He hears you or he can hear you. He's not hard of hearing. The problem is your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That he does not hear. And this is why, especially if, if you're in carnality and you know you're in carnality, and the Holy Spirit is, con- is convicting you of that carnality, and there's that, that, that impulse within you that says, I really should confess, I really should get in fellowship, and then you quench that, you grieve that, you resist that. Um, right, so God just closes his ears. He's not going to hear anything else you have to say until you confess. And that's, uh, that's the, and Colonel Theme wrote about that when he wrote his booklet on prayer. Uh-huh. Just to kind of help me understand a little bit better, then how do we reconcile then the, the aspect of uh, confession? I'm sure this is, you know, old as time as far as, well, if God can't hear our prayers, and how can he hear us when we confess? I didn't say he can't hear our prayers. I say he doesn't hear our prayers until we confess. And then he hears that, of course, because he can hear anything that we're praying. Right. Okay, and then I guess the, the last part is, I was trying to reconcile the, the, the filling of the Spirit in order for uh, to, to, to pray. Mm-hmm. And then I was trying to reconcile that with the, the idea of the filling being immediate or the you know or it being a process. Mm-hmm. So those were just you know something I was trying to reconcile with the six eighteen aspect. Yeah, you want to pray at all times in the spirit, by the spirit, through the spirit. Um, I forget what the preposition is there in verse eighteen. Dia pases prosukes kai deseos prosukamai en ponti kairo en numati. So it's just a dative of means with with n plus the dative. So that could be in the spirit, with the spirit, by the spirit, through the spirit. Uh, it's just the the spirit is the agency or the instrument that enables us to communicate with God. Okay, right, excellent questions. Those are all excellent questions. Thank you for that. Wes had a question too. Was that your question was about? Is that about Gideon? Oh yeah, yeah, the the lippers, the 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 dippers versus the lappers. Yeah, just the people that kneel to drink versus the people that lap their water like dogs, and mm-hmm. which ones God chose, even though He knew who was going to be left, but decided to. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a neat. That's a neat chapter. If you're not familiar with Gideon, his army was too big. <laughs> and God just had to keep cutting it down, cutting it down, cutting it down. And I don't know, I mean, the mechanism, uh, you know, he could have picked left-handed redheads or, I mean, anything. It's just that's what he selected was the the, the dippers versus the lappers and, and so forth. 
I think, uh, and, and we might also have something similar when we're gauging our circumstances and our details, when we're trying to observe circumstances in life as they're happening and we're leaving it with the Father saying, Father, you know, uh, arrange these circumstances so that if it's not your will, the door is closed. If it is your will, the door is open. And then on that basis, then we can proceed. So I don't think the, the actual specifics of uh, hand dipping versus throwing your face in the, in the, the pond um, I don't know that there's tremendous doctrine that's associated with that, but um, if I if I think of anything, I'll be sure to follow up. So I appreciate that. All right, what else tonight? Kevin's got one. Okay, um, in Genesis three fourteen, we you were talking at one point about the, the serpent and how the serpent was um, not a great creature that, that came into the garden. And mm-hmm. Uh, then the serpent got cursed. I'm just trying to curious here. Um, was a snake uh, possessed, or are we looking at um, a serpent being something completely different? And then how did the snake end up being on his belly? Yeah, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's a um, a zoological serpent in Ge- in Genesis chapter three. Because it says that he was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. However, many of the zoological animals are have a, have a resemblance to the angelic realm. Uh, for example, uh, some of the cherubim that have the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, the face of a of a lion, um, and so uh, the curse upon. And it may be that the curse is also upon the uh, the, the the Satan himself. That it's not how it's not usually it's thought of as well. This is how snakes ended up on their belly, you know, and that that's uh, that's reading into it. I think that's an eisegesis rather than an exegesis. Um, this guy was put on his belly, and uh, and so that may also be a, a divine judgment personally upon Satan for what it is that he has done, if if that makes sense. For when he materializes in the remember he was a dragon originally. He was a dragon with great might, with great wings, with great... And then after he fell, he was no longer a glorious dragon. He was this dark, scaly creature, still dragon-shaped, but dark and scaly, called the Leviathan in, in uh, the book of Job. And now, uh, with this consequence, it's like now he's not even... You know, the Leviathan has been you know, put on his belly, if, if you will. So um, this, is a, this is a puzzle I've been intending to, to work on, and I've not finished what I want to do with it. I'm curious what Pastor Cliff did with it, because I know he just went through Genesis not too long ago. Um, but the idea that God is going to punish zoolog- zoological serpents for what the angelic serpent did, um, I'm not comfy with that. That's, that's something I'm still trying to work out. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out if it was... I was always... Like, I always thought that the snake or the serpent was being possessed by Satan. And, and the snake ended up getting punished for... Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't punish the, the poor snake for getting possessed, you know. He's not... It's on his belly. <laughs> It says the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. That means the serpent was not one of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. Right? 
And so that it has to be a separate thing, not a part of the beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then the word nachash is used in other circumstances as well for spirit beings, for the for Satan and fallen angels. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very confident taking this as an angelic being. And what happens when an angel materializes in the physical universe? You know, the, the form that it takes, the shape that it takes. I think it has a default shape. Uh, and then maybe it can take the form of a man if God permits. And that's what happened with the, the Nephilim uh, parents and, and, and issues there. Yeah, there's a lot more work to be done on that. Okay. okay. All right. Well, thank you. Well, stay tuned on that. Because Genesis may be where we go after Hebrews. And that's something I've been praying about. Pastor Cliff was just there. And uh, although he didn't do the whole book of Genesis, he, he kind of went chapters 1 through 11. Um, but I meet with him once a month for lunch and we talk about all kinds of stuff and it's been kind of getting me excited about, about doing Genesis once, uh, once we're done with Hebrews. So stay tuned for that. All right. I'm going to leave the Bible software up and running because we've got some things to look at tonight from other materials. Thank you for running the microphone, Chris. I appreciate that. All right. So Philippians chapter three, as we're pressing on the upward way. As we're looking at the different slides, and I failed to jot down my slide numbers, so I'll just look at it this way. All right. So regarding rapture-ready perfection, Paul says, "One this one thing I know. He says in verse 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. And that's what he was talking about in verse 12. He was talking about being rapture ready, that he would in fact attain to the out-resurrection from the dead, that he would be rapture ready all day, every day. And we all want to be approaching that. We, we should be anticipating that trumpet day by day as we, as we function here on this earth. But not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but this one thing, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And so, if you want to count that as two, I I kind of think of that as two. Uh, Forgetting and reaching. Forgetting and reaching. And that's what we spent last week dealing with. um, Forgetting and reaching. In fact, Sunday morning... Uh, we spotlighted several of the hand stretches throughout Scripture. And I think it's more than just a throwaway expression. There's actually a significance to stretching out your hand. The very first one was the fear that Adam would stretch out his hand and take and, uh, from the tree of life and eat. And then the very next stretching out the hand was Abraham. As Abraham grabbed the knife, he stretched out his hand in order to, to kill Isaac in Genesis 22 repeatedly Moses and Aaron were involved stretching out their hands. It just seems that it's, it's not a throwaway expression. The actual act, the actual the symbolism behind it that demonstrates uh, authority, that demonstrates the right uh, to, to, to act and to do something. If somebody is given into your hand, that means that you have sovereignty over that, that who, whatever's been given into your hand. So had the illustration with David, with the angel of the Lord, the woman of excellence, and then repeatedly with Jesus, who was stretching forth his hand. And I think sometimes these are somewhat idiomatic, and yet they get glossed over. It's like, rise up and, and depart kind of a thing. And, and, and those are common. 
uh, to, to reach, to stretch out your hand and to grab, to stretch out your hand and to hold uh, these these things. And I think there's there's actual doctrinal significance to many of these aspects that perhaps we uh, we need to pay more attention to. For tonight, though, I want to move on to the goal, and that's what verse 14 is talking about. I press on, and it's the same verb we've already been dealing with from verse 12. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so this is point three in the outline. The focus of Paul's pressing forward. The focus of Paul's pressing forward. And it includes a goal or a target it includes a prize or a crown. It includes this upward call that's unique to the church age. We are the only heavenly people as far as uh, Israel or the Gentiles are concerned. Um, as far as the human stewardships go, we are the heavenly stewardship uh, on this earth. And so uh, all of these things, I think, are significant. The goal, the prize, and the upward call. And, uh, and with each additional detail, I think the very, the tone of the verse itself is making the point that the overall passage is making, and that is, we are forward focused, we are advancing, we are advancing, we are advancing. And the, and the verse itself kind of lends itself to that, the way that it's structured, with, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. And each, each, each expression here in this verse is just pushing the idea further and further and further ahead. So I like that a lot. All right, so I press on toward the goal. What's the goal? What, what, where is it we're hoping to go? What's our destination? What's our finish line? What's our target, as it were? And, uh, and can we really expect that there's going to be a prize when we get there? <laughs> yes. All right, we're promised that there is if... In fact, we are faithful. And that's uh, another big uh, exhortation here. All right, so uh, let's start with goal, and we'll see uh, if we can cover goal, prize, and upward call tonight. Um, that might be a bit ambitious. Because these are not, a lot of these are interrelated, but they're not synonymous. They are interrelated in the sense that, you know, the goal is the, the bullseye or the target. Um, and, and then the prize is what we're awarded when we get there. Although some people would say just getting there is the prize. And uh, no, there's actually a more substantial prize that, that comes upon our arrival. And then the whole idea of this upward call, the fact that we're to be heavenly focused, not earthly focused, I find that to be significant as well. All right, the, uh, the noun is skopos, S-K-O-P-O-S. And if you're thinking scope, that's, that's probably pretty accurate. Uh, the idea of the verb of scopeo, um, the mark or the goal, something that you got your eye fixed on, right? So you're looking at it, that's your target, and uh, you might miss the target, but at least you knew what you were shooting at, right? That's what you were looking at, that's your target, that's your goal. And, um, and it's curious to me, it's only, and by the way, as far as your New Testament word study is concerned, it's right here. <laughs> it's only the one time in the New Testament that skopos ever shows up, and it's, and it's right here. It is used uh, a number of times in the Septuagint, however. It's used in some apocryphal literature, some pseudepigraphal literature. In fact, I don't frequently read many of those items, except uh, unless it highly amuses me for some reason, or I think that uh, it's going to be edifying for, for the flock. Um, but this is something, too, that I think words change over time. And so in, in usage, you might have an earlier usage that translates into really more of a later usage. 
Because I think earlier on, it'd be pretty clear that in the Septuagint, really, a scopos was a target. A scopos was something that you would shoot at with arrows. And uh, whereas the later we kind of get through the Septuagint era and into the first century, into later Greek, and you get into the church fathers and later Greek, um, then I think the usage is not so much shooting at something, but actually running somewhere or, or trying to advance somewhere or arrive somewhere. So physically traveling to, uh, to a bullseye or to a mark or to a goal. Either way, the concept is uh, it is what it is. So um, if you want to call it goal, you want to call it target, you want to call it bullseye or whatever you want to call it, it is the skapos that Paul says he is, he is pressing on towards. And um, so in the Septuagint, we have Job 16. Remember, the Septuagint is the Old Testament translated into Greek. Okay? It's the Old Testament translated into Greek. And part of our apocryphal reading tonight is, uh, is going to describe that as well. Job 16.12. Say, so why are we wasting our time with the apocrypha? Because it's interesting. And it's in between the Septuagint and the New Testament as far as the, the centuries are concerned and the, the, uh, the usage, the word usage in, in Greek culture. So in Job 16, 12, we have the lament that uh, he says, all right, you guys are no help. Uh, Job answered, I have heard many such things. Sorry, comforters are you all. Is there no limit to windy words or what plagues, uh, what plagues you that you answer? That's how the chapter begins. And uh, he says in verse 6 that talking doesn't help anything. If I speak, my pain is not lessened. And if I hold back, what has left me? <laughs> and uh, so they're no help to him and even his own gripes aren't helping. Nothing seems to be helping. And so instead, he just starts talking about how unfair God is. And um, so starting in around verse 11 then, God hands me over to ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me. And he has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. He has set me up as his skapos. His arrows surround me. Without mercy, he splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall on the ground. So, um, yeah, this is not good. <laughs> right? And it's also not true. Uh, and yet, in your, in your grief, you, you will voice a lot of things that are not true, but it seems like it's true. Because this is how it appears. This is how it seems to you. And, and he, can't, he can't really explain why all these terrible things are happening in his life. As far as he knows, he has no secret sin. The only thing he can assume is that God is unfair and God is somehow attacking him for no explicable reason. And so that's what he is voicing there. But he has also set me up as his target, as his bullseye. And uh, Jeremiah will have a similar lament, Lamentations 3.12. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Lamentations, the most depressing book in the Bible. Chapter 3, the most depressing chapter. And yet, it's got some of the best promises you'll ever find right here in the midst of... Uh, this is where we have the great is thy faithfulness promise in Lamentations chapter 3. But in uh, verse 12, before he's reminded of God's faithfulness, 
I mean, you just look at this and you see, uh, I am the man who has seen affliction. And this chapter, by the way, is 66, is it 66 verses? Yes. Chapter 1 is an acrostic, 22 verses following the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 2 is an acrostic with uh, 22 verses going through the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 is an acrostic, but it's tripled. So you have Aleph, 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 Baith, 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 Gimel, Gimel, Gimel. And so it's working your way through the Hebrew alphabet again, only with triplets of verses for 66 verses. And then uh, chapter 4 and 5. I forget now where the the pattern gets broken because... they're both 22 chapter uh, verses, but I think when you get to chapter 5, it's not an acrostic anymore <laughs> for some reason. All right. But Lamentations 3, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places He has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become a laughingstock to all my people. Their mocking song all the day. Anyway, so we passed it around. Verse 12 is the, is the verse there that has the, the skapos, the target for the arrow. And yet, um, with all of this... Uh, Lamentation. Where did I stop? With the mocking song. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. When you reach that point and you have no hope left, you believe that your prayer won't be answered because there is no answer. Then you can get to verse 19. <laughs> and he says, remember. He's calling upon Yahweh to remember. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And so... I think we were talking about this in Hebrews a couple weeks ago, that just to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God, to refresh yourself on His divine attributes, and to, uh, to reassure yourself that however long this test is, this test appears to be eternal, but it can't be eternal because I'm finally going to die someday, and then this test is over. And, uh, but God's faithfulness is eternal, even if this uh, test is for the rest of my life. Um, God is faithful, and we can, uh, we can rejoice in that. And so these are the uh, Septuagint uses that I thought were useful for us. Job 16.12 and Lamentations 3.12 as it relates to targets, bullseyes. 
Uh, and Paul says, I'm pressing on toward the, the target, towards the bullseye, or towards the goal. If he was shooting at it, we would render it as a goal or target. If it, since he's running towards it, we'll call it a, a goal. Now in the Apocrypha, there is another book of wisdom literature, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon. It does not belong in the Bible, but it does reflect a lot of the same terminology. And uh, in Wisdom uh, 5, 20, 12 and 21... I don't suspect anyone tonight brought their Apocrypha with them. So I'll open it up here. Here we go. By the way, if you have an original King James and it had some of the Apocrypha in it, you'll have some of the verses there. Um, And without reading the whole chapter... talking about things that uh, when they go, talking about pride. So I guess I'll start in the verse 8. And and remember, this is not the Bible. Okay, This is the wisdom of Solomon, but it's not the real Solomon. It says, (laughs) it's an apocryphal text that was written in the Maccabean era. It was written after the Old Testament canon was closed. But it is a representative of what Hebrew literature, uh, you know, how they express themselves in... uh, and how they use language and things like that. So it's very similar to Proverbs in content, uh, but the Greek vocabulary is interesting to us uh, in this sense. All right. So what hath pride profited us, or what good hath riches with our vaunting brought us? All those things are passed away like shadow, as a post that hasted by, as a ship that passeth over the waves of the water, which when it is gone by, the trace thereof cannot be found. Right? You know, once the ship's gone, you know, you might have a little wake for a little while, but then it just disappears. Neither the pathway of the keel in the waves. Or as when a bird hath flown through the air, there is no token of her way to be found. You ever see the, you know, birds don't leave footprints when they're flying through the air. So you can't, you can't see that. And, um, but the light air being beaten with a stroke of her wings and parted with a violent noise and motion of them is passed through and there and afterwards no sign of where she went is to be found or like as when an arrow is shot at a mark when an arrow is shot at a skapos it parteth the air which immediately cometh together again so that a man cannot know where it went through and uh, so even so, we in like manner, as soon as we were born, began to draw to our end and had no sign of virtue to show, but were consumed in our own wickedness. For the hope of the ungodly is like dust. And anyway, he gets through some other depressing things here. When I get down to verse 20 also, there's another reference. He shall take to him his jealousy for complete armor and make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. He shall put on righteousness as a breastplate and true judgment instead of a helmet. He shall take holiness for an invincible shield. His severe wrath shall he sharpen for a sword, and the world shall fight with him against the unwise. And um, the other use of the target is in verse 21. Then shall the right-aiming thunderbolts go abroad, and from the clouds, as from a well-drawn bow, shall they fly to the mark. So, uh, yeah, when, when God's throwing lightning bolts in his anger, he doesn't miss, right? He's going to hit the, the target of what it is he's, uh, he's throwing it at. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, 
Then in the Epistle of Aristeus, you ever heard of the Epistle of Aristeus? No? Okay. Of all the apocryphal works, it's, it's interesting to me. Again, it doesn't belong in the Bible, but it's legendary. And it's the, it's the mythology that the Jews came up with, probably in the second century or the first century BC. Um, but it was their legend of how the Septuagint was written. It was their legend of the men that were selected to present themselves before the king of Egypt, to offer their wisdom before the king of Egypt. And then uh, because the king of Egypt wanted a copy, he was, he was stocking his library with every book he could find in the world. And he felt that the greatest library in the world, the library at Alexandria, the greatest library in the world should have the greatest books in the world. And he was very impressed with the Hebrew scriptures. And so the request was then made that they could translate the Torah, they could translate it from Hebrew into Greek. And so, of course, it happened. Now, they made that translation, and they started with the Mosaic Law, and then eventually they did all the, the books of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, but the exact details of the mythology is found in the letter of Aristeus. No one really holds a whole lot of, of uh, you know, not exactly believable in some ways and, and embellished and, and exaggerated and, and whatever else. Anyway, um, but, uh, and so, yeah, the Epistle of Aristeus, uh, chapter 251 or section 251 is, uh, is worth looking at. Let me just bring it up and I'll show you too, if you want to do this yourself and you can open up uh, Philippians 3.12, or 314. Uh, Here we go. Remember, we're just looking at the word goal. Skopos. Do your word study. And uh, this is available if, if you have the software and you want to do this yourself and, and track it. There's your one use in the, in the uh, New, New Testament. Here's your Septuagint usages, including the two I showed you. There's actually 24 of them. Um... I only showed you two out of 24, okay? And then you've got your other textual ser uh, searches here as well, including uh, the uh, Septuagint, the New Testament, the Apostolic Fathers, the Pseudepigrapha, Josephus, Philo, and the Greek classics. You get into the Greek classics, you've got almost 600 uses there of skopos through all kinds of, all kinds of Greek literature. Uh, but let me just pick up here with the letter of Aristeus. and get myself in trouble. Here we go. Make it larger. If you want, you can read along with the Greek or you can read along with the English. Whatever you want to do on that. A colored skopos with a yellow highlight. Um, so... There's a lot of questions that are being asked. And what happens is these translators have been brought down to Egypt. And they're, the, the, the king of Egypt is actually giving them uh, a feast night after night after night. He figures, I got these wise men and they're going to be translating these scriptures. And while I have them here, let me ask them these questions. And he's finding that they're, they're better than any of his philosophers. They're better than any of the Greek philosophers that he has around. And so he keeps asking them more and more questions. And so, um, 
And so as you get to each section, like you see there in 253, delighted with these words, the king asked another how he could be free from wrath. And he's got a whole slew of questions here. And it goes way back. Um, there's the word for goal. He's just got tons and tons of questions. So um, so here we'll just pick up, because um, we can spend all night reading these. Uh, on the next day, when the opportunity offered, the king asked the next man, what is the grossest form of neglect? And he replied, if a man does not care for his children and devote every effort to their education. For we always pray to God, not so much for ourselves as for our children, that every blessing may be theirs. Our desire that our children may possess self-control is only realized by the power of God. So the king said that he had spoken well and then asked another how he could be patriotic. By keeping before your mind, he replied, the thought that it is good to live and die in one's own country. Residence abroad brings contempt upon the poor and shame upon the rich as though they had been banished for a crime. If you bestow benefits upon all, as you continually do, God will give you favor with all, and you will be accounted patriotic. That's the answer there. Uh, And this cracks me up. After listening to this man, the king asked the next in order, how he could live amicably with his wife. (laughs) All right, now I'm quoting here. I didn't write this. I didn't make this up. All right. How he could live amicably with his wife. And he answered, by recognizing that womankind are by nature headstrong and and energetic in the pursuit of their own desires and subject to sudden changes of opinion through fallacious reasoning. And their nature is essentially weak. It is necessary to deal wisely with them and not to provoke strife. For the successful conduct of life, the steersman must know the goal toward which he ought to direct his course. It is only by calling upon the help of God that men can steer a true course of life at all times. And so the king expressed his agreement (laughs) and asked the next how he could be free from error. Anyway, this, though, I mean, we're, we're laughing. It's fun. But think about it. Realize how revolutionary Jesus was when he had so many women followers, when he had these leading women that were supporting his ministry, when he was dining with Mary and Martha, when, when he had the, I mean, it was staggering. And then into the, the book of Acts and into the New Testament with no man, no woman, that, uh, that you're neither male nor female in Christ. And the, the blessings of the church age were extraordinary and uh, completely at odds with uh, the attitudes and the philosophies and the, the mindset uh, that Judaism had at that time and uh, that Islam has to this day in, uh, in so many ways. I find, that, uh, I find that interesting. So anyway, you want to know how to be free from error? Uh, he replied, if you always act with deliberation and never give credence to slanders, but prove for yourself the things that are said to you and decide by your own judgment the requests which are made to you and carry out everything in the light of your judgment, you will be free from error, O king. But the knowledge and practice of these things is the work of the divine power. 
Anyway, there's more. There's chapters and chapters of this. He was grilling these 70 scholars for days on end as he brought them down to Alexandria to translate the, uh, the, the law into, uh, into Greek. All right, so that's the uh, epistle of Aristeas, 251. Then the church fathers, 1st Clement, 2nd Clement, and these ones are probably the best suited for our uh, comparisons and our considerations because these are written after Philippians. These are written after the New Testament. These are, uh, uh, these are Christians, uh, uh, not part of the Bible, but they are Christian authors that have been shaped by the New Testament in uh, what they have learned. And so 1st Clement 19.2, 1st Clement 63.1, and 2nd Clement 19.1. Those are the references there if you're not familiar with the abbreviations. And keep in mind, 1st Clement is earlier than Revelation. 1st Clement is in the, in the early 90s AD. Okay? It does not belong in the Bible. It's not canonical. Don't get me wrong. But it is contemporaneous with... The book of Revelation was written in 96 AD. That shows you how early it is, how contemporaneous it is with other New Testament writings. And so again, a simple means of pulling these up would be to do this. Let me pull up the Apostolic Fathers then. And here's a fun thing we can do. Let's just open this in an inline search. How about that? Send to an inline search. And that way we can just look at the verses we want to look at. So in First uh, in, uh, Clement 19.2, whoops. What did I do? What did I do? Here we go. Ah, of course, if I do this, then you don't get the larger context of it. But okay. Seeing then that we have a share in many great and glorious deeds, let us hasten on to the goal of peace, which has been handed down to us from the beginning. Let us fix our eyes upon the Father and Maker of the whole world and hold fast to His magnificent and excellent gifts and benefits of peace. I think this is a believer that was shaped by the book of Philippians and he was shaped by the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and the, the words that he expresses reflect that, with your, have fixing your eyes and uh, hastening on to the goal of peace. First Clement 63.1 Therefore it is right for us, having studied so many and such great examples, to uh, bow the neck and adopting the attitude of obedience to submit to those who are the leaders of our souls, so that by ceasing from this futile dissension we may attain the goal that is truly set before us, free from all blame. Okay. Oh, by the way, did I mention Clement was writing to the Corinthians? <laughs> He's writing to the same rebels that Paul was writing to in First and Second Corinthians. It's just 30 years later. Okay, Probably their children and grandchildren, if you will. And he's saying, come on, let's bow the neck. Let's, let's not be stiff-necked. Let's uh, adopt the attitude of obedience to submit to those who are the leaders of our souls. And then Second Clement... Therefore, brothers and sisters, following the God of truth, I am reading you an exhortation to pay attention to what is written in order that you may save both yourselves and your reader. As compensation, I ask that you repent with your whole heart, thereby giving salvation and life to yourselves. Phase two salvation, by the way. For by doing this, we will set a goal for all the young people who desire to devote themselves to piety and the goodness of God. That we're living out our Christian faith 
and we are the target, we are the goal that uh, the younger generation can then emulate. All right, well, there's our terms there for Skapos. I press on toward the goal for the prize. So the goal is the bullseye, the goal is the target. And the neat thing is, is uh, if we fall short, guess what? We can confess, we can get back up, we can keep on pressing on. And that's the thing, that uh, there's never uh, uh, an expiration date, there's never a limit to 1 John 1, nine. It doesn't say if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins up to the first 5,000 sins in any given year, right? No, there's no limit. There's no lifetime maximum. Not like your insurance company that says, well, here's your maximum lifetime amount and then you're done, okay? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so we can get up, we can keep moving, we can keep heading towards the goal. The prize, the prize Brabeon, B-R-A-B-E-I-O-N, Brabeon. And it's used twice in the New Testament. It's used twice also uh, in the Apostolic Fathers. We have a verb, which is sometimes rendered to judge, but really, um, well, you'll see what I mean in the moment. It's, it's, it's not a courtroom judge, it's, uh, it's an athletic judge. It's uh, a judge who's awarding prizes. It's the judge who's determining you know, the prizes that are, that are awarded based upon the performance. And so that's the kind of uh, verb that brabeon is, to award prizes. Or brabuo, I should say, is the verb to, uh, to judge or to award prizes. So uh, 1 Corinthians 9.24, you might remember this. Paul uh, got to see quite a few races in Olympic Games. The Isthmus Games uh, at Corinth were legendary. And, um, and so in writing to the Corinthians, he uses these metaphors, things that, that they would be very familiar with. Um, you know, it might be if you're writing a letter to somebody from Boston, they might know something about a marathon, right? You would, if, you, if your town is kind of famous for a particular athletic event, you know, you could imagine somebody... Uh, you know, at Daytona wouldn't know anything about the Daytona 500 or whatever that race is, right? Or somebody from Indianapolis would be clueless about the race that's there. The Corinthians are obviously very well aware of, of these expressions that Paul's talking about. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the brabeon? Only one receives the prize. So everybody's racing, and the prize goes to the winner. They didn't uh, function in a kind of a pathetic way that everybody gets a ribbon today in, uh, you know, the participation because, uh, you know, there's tender self-esteem. No, slow people uh, will be motivated to run faster next time. And uh, losing is, uh, is, is the agony of defeat. And we don't try to erase the agony of defeat. We want the agony of defeat to be motivational for Doing better the next time. Trying harder the next time. So do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the brabeon? Run in such a way that you may win. There's nothing wrong with living your Christian life in anticipation of the glory that is to be revealed. I want reward. I want full reward. I want more than I know I'm going to get because every bit I get is what I want to throw at my Savior's feet. And I know that He's worth 
far more than anything I'm going to accumulate and, and throw at his feet. So therefore I run, or everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so that's our term there. Of course, Philippians 3.14 is the verse we're looking at tonight. I press on towards the goal of the prize or for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.15, maybe this will be a verse that uh, will have a... a um, greater resonance with you now with each one of us now as we read it again and again knowing that it's not uh, a courtroom judge that it's not um any other kind of a judge but it is a prize awarding official let the peace of christ rule in your hearts let the peace of christ award prizes as it will. Rule. Judge. Let the peace of Christ be the sporting event prize adjudicator to which indeed you were called in one body and be faith and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so that's the uh, brabuo verb there, to award prizes. Translated as rule. Yeah, I don't know. Award judge, award prizes. Okay? A couple of the church fathers used this verb as well, or used the noun as well. First Clement again, 5.5. Five. And then in the martyrdom of Polycarp. There's a fun use there. So we can bring those up again. This time we're going to look for prize. We'll do our word study on brabeon. We'll drop down to the bottom. There were no Septuagint uses of Rabbeon. But in the Apostolic Fathers, there's 1 Clement 5.5 5, and then the Martyrdom of Polycarp 17.1. I did a lot of coloring on this one and not recently either, by the way. This was a long time ago. Um, we were looking at this. Oops. There we go. Show you the Rabbeon usage there in verse 5. I was looking at this um, when we were talking about how many times had Paul been imprisoned? How many times? Because remember, uh, we were putting forth a, uh, an Ephesian imprisonment as the source of the Philippian epistle. And we weren't limiting Paul's imprisonments to Caesarea and Rome and that single overnight stay in Philippi, right? Those are the only ones we know about in the book of Acts, but we know that he had many more imprisonments beyond that because he talks about uh, in far more imprisonments. And so uh, in talking about the different apostles and uh, the example that they set, so... To pass from the examples of ancient times, let us come to those champions who lived nearest to our time. Let us set before us the noble examples which belong to our own generation. Because of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars were persecuted and fought to the death. 
Let us set before our eyes the good apostles. There was Peter, who because of unrighteous jealousy endured not one or two, but many trials, and thus, having given his testimony, went to his appointed place of glory. Because of jealousy and strife, Paul, by his example, pointed out the way to the prize for patient endurance. And that's the use of prize that we're looking at with Brabeon. After he had been seven times in chains and had been driven into exile, had been stoned, had been preached in the east and in the west, he won the genuine glory for his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the west. And of all the expressions that were ever written by any church father, that phrase has gotten more attention than anything else. What did he mean by the farthest limits of the west? Was that Tarsus on the coast of Spain? Or was that even beyond that? Was that in Cornwall, actually, on the British uh, coast? Uh, there's legends and traditions there. In any event, finally, when he had given his testimony before the rulers, he thus departed from the world and went to the holy place, having become an outstanding example of patient endurance. And it goes on, but... This was the chapter we had seen way back when we first were introducing the the book of Philippians, uh, talking about the multiple imprisonments that Paul had endured. And uh, so it's kind of fun to see that again when looking for the the, uh, target, looking for the prize, rather, the prize of patient endurance. Then um, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was... uh, his martyrdom is quite extraordinary to read through. It's a tremendous example. I love his testimony when they're tying him to the stake. And he was an old man. They didn't really want to kill him. And all he had to do was recant and just deny Christ. And they would take him down. And, and he almost has a moment of weakness, but then he stops and he says, wait a minute. He says, for 86 years I've served him and, and he's been faithful to me. Why would I, why would I uh, deny him now? And so by the time we get to chapter 17, um, it's over. He's, uh, he's been executed here. So, um, yeah, and some of this legends about how not even the, the mighty flame blazed up. We saw a miracle and um, anyway. When the lawless men eventually realized his body could not be consumed by the fire, they ordered an executioner to go up to him and stab him with a dagger. And when he did this, there came out a large quantity of blood so that it extinguished the fire. And the whole crowd was amazed that there should be so great a difference between the unbelievers and the elect. Among them, most certainly, was this man, the most remarkable Polycarp, who proved to be an apostolic and prophetic teacher in our own time, Bishop of the Holy Church in Smyrna, for every word which came from his mouth was accomplished and will be accomplished. But the jealous and evil one, envious evil one, the adversary of the race of the righteous, when he observed the greatness of his martyrdom and that his life was irreproachable from the beginning and that he was now crowned with a crown of immortality and had won a prize which no one could challenge, saw to it that not even his poor body should be taken away by us, even though many desired to do this and to touch his holy flesh. So he incited Nicetus, the father of Herod and brother of Alci, to plead with the magistrate to not give up his body, or else, he said, they may abandon the crucified one and begin to worship this man. All this being done at the instigation and insistence of the Jews, who even watched when we were about to take it from the fire, 
and they did not know that we will never be able either to abandon the Christ who suffered for the salvation of the whole world uh, of those who were saved, the blameless on behalf of sinners, or to worship anyone else. Anyway, I thought that was a neat testimony too. For this one who is the Son of God we worship, but the martyrs we love as disciples and imitators of the Lord, as they deserve on account of their matchless devotion to their own King and Teacher, may we also become their partners and fellow disciples. So, Anyway, if you've never read the martyrdom of Polycarp, I recommend you read the whole thing. That's just chapter 17. And everything that leads up to it is uh, the, the urging that they gave him in order to repent and, uh, and to avoid it. All right. So pressing on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of the upward call. The onoclesis. Ono is the adverb for upward and clasis is calling. And this is where um, what we'll look at on Sunday because calling along with election and choosing. Some of these are concepts that make people upset, get people all out of sorts. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll have fun with it. We'll be good. I mean, we're not going to be sensational or whatever. The calling, many are called, but few are chosen. And a lot of the arguments that happen between, you know, the sovereignty of God and the, and the free will of man, um, sometimes they center on these terms. They center on calling, they center on choosing, they center on uh, these activities. And yet I think in debating those things, a lot of times the bigger, the real issue gets missed. And the real issue that we have a salvation calling, we also have a ministry calling, we have particular mission callings, that is particular um, stages of ministry within an overall ministry calling. And so um, I think all of those things need to be paid attention to and the recognition that each one of us has a calling, not just to be saved. That's kind of the no-brainer. By the time you, you know, by the time you start learning this doctrine, you've already passed that stage. You're already saved You've already been called to eternal life. Now, as you're learning the Word of God, you can start listening for the call in terms of open-door ministry pursuits and in terms of um, particular assignments that, uh, that the Lord would have for you in that regard. So, um, as you can see, it's a pretty broad spectrum. Most of them are Paul's, uh, but the one there in Hebrews 3.11, the apostle and high priest of our calling, of our confession, we are partakers of a heavenly calling, as, uh, as Hebrews makes clear. So we'll deal with this uh, Sunday morning, Lord willing and rapture pending. Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight and thank you for the blessing we have to come together. And I pray, Father, that we um, would understand what the, the bullseye is, we would understand what the prize is, that uh, we do want to be reaching forward to it. We don't want to assume we've already earned it. We don't want to assume that it's guaranteed or in the bag. But Father, we keep pressing on and we keep striving day by day so long as uh, it's called today. So Father, uh, continue to open our eyes to these beautiful truths. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.